Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. I know I've said this before, but I just want you to know how much of a joy it is to hear you as God's people sing to one another as God's word calls us to in Colossians chapter 4, that we teach one another by singing to one another. So evidence of a healthy church is that it's a singing church. So what a joy it is to sing together with you this morning. Well, if you would be turning to Hebrews chapter 11, and as you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. So any children who may be participating in our children's class can make your way uh, there to the back room, and uh, volunteers will be there to greet you and to instruct you in God's Word in that context this morning. Uh, And again, if everybody else would turn to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews. Uh, This morning, we're going to be focusing on Hebrews 11, verses 28 through 31. Uh, But when I read our passage for us, I want to back up to verse 23, uh, just to get a running start there, uh, to see the context that leads into 28 through 31. So let me read God's word for us this morning, together with you, and then we'll pause and take a moment to pray, as we do every week, and ask for the Lord's help. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we just want to declare praises to you for all that you have accomplished through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we want to pause as we do every single week to thank you for the privilege of gathering here together as your people. It is a privilege to come together, to be together, to hear your word read aloud together, to pray together, to sing together, to be under the truth and authority of your word together. You have called us to do this together for our good and for the glory of your name. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the redeeming work of Christ. We thank you that you've given us faith to believe and trust in him and to gather as your people this morning. 
Father, we also know that you have promised us that your word has the power to change us. That because of the spirit you have sent to dwell in us, that when we expose ourselves to the truth and the authority of your word, as we read it and through the work of your spirit within us, you will change us and transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. You will encourage us. You will bring conviction to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would do all of these things this morning, that you would convict us where uh, we need to be corrected, where we are in sin, and that you would restore us to obedience and faithfulness. Father, where we are doing well, I pray that we would find encouragement in the truth of your word. And Father, in the midst of all of that, I pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning, this faith that you have made clear in the book of Hebrews we need to endure. And so, Father, teach us what it means to live faithful lives. I'm so thankful for these examples of uh, these men and women of faith throughout the Old Testament. And I pray that we would just continue to meditate on what you accomplished through their lives, on their lives of faith, and how it's a challenge to us, and how we need to follow their example for the glory of your name. And so, Father, I ask for your help. I pray that you would lead us into all truth that you would guide my words, that you would uh, not allow me to speak uh, anything that is untrue of you, that we would not be led astray, but instead you would lead us into all truth for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know we've... uh, been camping out in chapter 11 for a good while now, and we're going to continue to be in chapter 11 uh, for a while. We're not, we're not quite done yet, but I think it's important that we take in all that this chapter has to offer. Uh, Every person that's mentioned in chapter 11, that the author of Hebrews reaches back and holds up as an example for us to follow, uh, is there for a reason. Each of their experiences and their lives of faith are giving to us, uh, are given to us as something that we should learn from, something we can benefit from. And so I want to be sure we don't just rush over them, that we don't uh, fail to give them the attention that they deserve. That's why I think it's important that we take the time to meditate on each of these things. In fact, I think the author of Hebrews, when When he wrote Hebrews chapter 11, he assumed that we would all have the weight of the Old Testament narrative upon us as we read these brief sentences about what happened. And I don't want to presume that any of us necessarily know exactly what events are being referred to. So that's why I think it's important that we take the time to reach back and to be sure we remember or learn for the first time exactly what it is that's being referred to with these four events that he recounts in each of these verses. Verse 28, verse 29, verse 30, and verse 31. Because as I said there, here for a reason. They have something unique to teach us about the faith that endures. And the reason we need to hear that, the reason we need to spend time in chapter 11 as we have been doing is because the word faith is a term that's thrown around a lot in our culture, right? It's, it's used a lot. We use the word faith and believe in. And you hear me, you, you, you guys have heard me 
uh, complain about the emptiness of the word belief, the emptiness of the word faith that exists in our culture. But the reality is, most of the time when people talk about faith in our culture, oftentimes, even in the church, unfortunately, it's really just, if we're being honest, the substitute word for optimism. Right? When they say faith, they just mean you should be, you should be optimistic. You should just have positive thinking. So for example, if you're, if you're into sports, you'll often hear athletes being interviewed at the end of the game. Maybe they're having a rough first half or first period, depending on what sport it is. Things aren't going well. The team's getting beat and they end up coming back and winning. And the reporter is interviewing them at the end of the game. And they may say something like, well, well what changed in the second half? What made the difference? And they'll say, well, we just decided we had to keep believing. Well, what does that mean? Right? Believing in what? Just, you just had to think positively? That's really all that it took? Right? Or, or if maybe sports aren't your thing, maybe you enjoy movies or TV shows, and uh, maybe you have a favorite actor, and you hear them talk about their struggles to land their first role while they're waiting tables in Los Angeles or, or in New York or wherever they may be. And they do this for years and they're ready to throw in the towel. But eventually they, they keep going. They keep enduring through what, what they would call these, these difficult jobs. And, and the person interviewing them may ask, well, why didn't you just give up? Why did you endure for two or three years or five years or however long it was of working these odd jobs and, and just uh, squeezing things out, waiting? for your your big break and and often you'll hear them say something like well I just had to have faith that it was all going to work out and really what they mean by that is I just had to think positively that maybe some way somehow in the end everything was going to work out and it was just going to come to pass ultimately I think if we're being honest that kind of faith is nothing more than wishful thinking and the danger is when we take that concept of faith, that wishful thinking, and try to make it work with Scripture because wishful thinking could not be further from the biblical concept of faith. Biblical faith is not wishful thinking. Biblical faith is rock-solid confidence in the sovereignty and the ruling majestic power of our sovereign God. That's what biblical faith is. It is not wishful thinking. It's not the power of positive thinking. It's not optimism. It is confidence in the unshakable reality of God our Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why when the author is getting to the end of Hebrews chapter 10, and I know we've talked about this almost every week, but it's so important to remember the context that leads into chapter 11. As he comes to the end of chapter 10, uh, remember, the Hebrews are struggling. They're, 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 they're facing persecution and hardship, and they're being tempted to return to Judaism, to walk away from Jesus. And he says, don't do it, right? Don't do it. Don't throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. And then the last verse of chapter 10, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. And preserve their souls. In other words, if we're going to endure, if we're going to have our souls preserved by God's grace, then we must have faith. And not just any kind of faith, but we must have enduring faith. Therefore, chapter 11 
through the examples of these Old Testament stories, through these historical events, keeps asking one simple question. What does a life of enduring faith look like? What does a life of enduring faith look like? We need this kind of enduring faith. We need this faith that's at work to preserve our souls. And therefore, these are lessons that we all need to take in and plead with God to use in our lives to allow us as well to endure faithfully to the end. So we simply want to continue on that theme and look at these this morning, four examples of faith that the Lord has given to us in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 28 through 31. And I'm sure you notice as we look at those verses, 28 through 31, as each verse is recounting a, a different event. And so we're just going to look one event at a time, one person at a time at these verses and see what it is that God intends to teach us about enduring faith through these uh, uh, historical people, through these historical events. And so we're going to see three truths about enduring, oh, sorry, four truths about enduring faith, one per, one per event. Now, the reality is, just before we even get into that, I think you'll see each of these truths in each of these individual events. But, but there's a unique way, I think, in which each of these events highlights uh, these particular truths. And so, number one, enduring faith bears the fruit of obedience Enduring faith bears the fruit of obedience. Number two, enduring faith acts on God's provision. Number three, enduring faith requires patience. And number four, enduring faith must be personal. Bears the fruit of obedience, acts on God's provision, requires patience. Number four, must be personal. Now, the reality is we will likely spend the, the majority of our time on this first truth that, that enduring faith bears the fruit of obedience. This is a central reality to faith. And so I want to be sure we spend time here understanding it as we see it in verse 28. So let's just dive in right there with truth number one, that enduring faith bears the fruit of obedience. Look again with me at verse 28. By faith he, referring to Moses, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So let's remind ourselves what's being referred to here in verse 28. So verse 28 picks up the story where we left off last week in verse 27. In verse 27 we saw that Moses in faith, he, he left Egypt, he renounced his great position of wealth and, and privilege there in Egypt, and he put behind the fleeting pleasures of sin because he considered the reproach of Christ. You see that in verse 26, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was willing to leave it all behind to follow what God was calling him to do, to align himself with the people of God. And so he leaves it behind. He leaves behind Egypt and he goes away uh, essentially out into the wilderness. And as he's out there, one of the, one of the most well-known events in the Bible occurs, right? God speaks to him from the burning bush. And God says to Moses that he's heard the cry of his people 
and that he wants Moses to return, to be used of God, to go back and to, to, to call his people out to, to free them from their slavery in Egypt. And God says he's going he's gonna to go with him, but that he wants Moses to go and to demand from Pharaoh that he would, he would release the people of Israel, essentially. But here's what's fascinating. Before Moses says one word to Pharaoh, God tells Moses, he says, look, you're going to go ask him to do this, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And so you're going to have to ask and ask and ask again because he is not going to listen to you. He is not going to let my people go at first. In fact, he tells him there at the very beginning that he's, essentially, he's going to have to kill the firstborn of Egypt. And the reason God says he did this is because he wanted to have the opportunity to display his power and his sovereignty over Pharaoh so that with each of Pharaoh's denials, God brought another more severe plague demonstrating the power and sovereignty over his power and sovereignty over Egypt. I mean, it says in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, uh, God talking about Pharaoh, but for this reason I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so Moses goes and exactly what God says was going to happen is what happens. He demands that Pharaoh let the people go take a few days out to the wilderness to worship and offer sacrifices to their God. He refuses to let them go. So uh, uh, Moses, by the power of God, turns the water of the Nile and the water of Egypt to blood. And he goes away and Pharaoh and says, well, uh, well Pharaoh says, will you make all this go away? And uh, if you do, I might let the people go. And he goes back and uh, changes his mind and refuses again. And so then uh, the Lord brings the plague of frogs upon the land. Then once again, once all the frogs are cleared up, Pharaoh acts like he's going to change his mind. He refuses again to let his people go. So the frogs are done with. Then God brings gnats, a plague of gnats, then a plague of flies. Then, then he causes all the livestock in Egypt to die. Then he brings boils upon the Egyptians then he brings hail and then locusts. And then every step of the way, Pharaoh continues to refuse to let the people go. His heart is hardened. He will not relent. And finally, the ninth plague comes and God causes darkness to fall over the entire land. And often, I think we, we read over this ninth plague and but perhaps it's one of, outside of the 10th plague, one of the most astounding to think over because it says that, uh, that in, in Exodus chapter 10, it says that for three days, for three days, no one could see each other and they didn't leave their place. Right, so this wasn't like uh, even the darkness we know of when we walk outside at night, when we have the light of the moon shining and we can see some things, right? We can see our hand in front of our face. We, we kind of know what's going on. No, this was absolute darkness. In some way, somehow, apparently, God prevented them from even lighting a lamp or a candle. 
They did not see each other or move from their place for three days. But yet the people of God had light. But even then, even through that miraculous, overwhelming event, a clear demonstration of the power of God, Pharaoh's heart continues to be hardened and he still refuses to let the people go. And so God comes to Moses and he says, okay, we're going to bring one final tenth plague on the Egyptians. And he tells Pharaoh through Moses that every firstborn child and animal in the land of Egypt is going to die that night. Every firstborn child, not firstborn baby, not babies in their home, every person who was the firstborn in their home, regardless of how old they currently were, every firstborn person was going to be wiped out in a single night. That was the 10th plague that God was going to bring upon the Egyptians. But even here at the very beginning in Exodus chapter 11, when God is telling Moses this is what he is going to do, when he's instructing Moses about what Moses is to tell Pharaoh, this is the plague that's coming. Even there at the very beginning, this is what Exodus chapter 11 verse 7 says. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Not a dog shall growl, right? That's, a, that's kind of a, a poetic, illustrative way of saying, nothing shall harm my people. They won't even be threatened by the growl of a dog. Nothing is going to happen to them so that there will be a distinction between what I'm doing to Egypt and what happens to my people. So from the very beginning, from the very first moment that God threatens this plague, he has made clear to Moses and to Pharaoh what his intentions will be. He has promised and committed to the fact that he will protect his people from this final tenth plague and the death of the firstborn. Now, why do I emphasize that? So that's Exodus 11. We get to Exodus 12. And God gives instructions to Moses about the Passover. And that brings us to what we're looking at here in verse 28. You see, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. And God tells Moses that he wants every home to take a one-year-old uh, lamb, it can be a sheep or a goat, but a, a one-year-old lamb, and they're to slaughter it. They're to eat of it in a particular way. He gave them instructions about how to prepare it. But they're to take the blood of that lamb and they're to sprinkle it or essentially paint it, cover the doorpost of their home with it, the left doorpost, the right doorpost, and the lintel, which we would call a header. Right, So the left doorpost, the right doorpost, and to cover it all in blood. That's what he tells them to do in Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, 13, we have the explanation for why this is. God says, The blood shall be a sign for you 
on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this blood would mark the home. It would set apart that home. And God would pass over it. The angel of death would pass over it. The destroyer would pass over it. And the firstborn of those homes would be protected. But notice with me what's the obvious reality. There's nothing special about the blood of the lambs. It's just animal blood, right? It's not like it's they got to go hunt for a rare unicorn and right, find some unicorn blood and it's magical and like the angel can't penetrate the special, right? No, it's just, it's a symbol. Right? It's the blood of a lamb demonstrated to be painted on the doorpost. It was, it was a demonstration that would serve as a sign. It was a demonstration that this home, this home is trusting in the promises of God. This home is setting itself apart. This home is declaring that they belong to the sovereign God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. See, by a simple act, he called on his people to demonstrate their faith in his promise. Now, let's put some things together. Notice something with me as we meditate on all that we've learned from Exodus In Exodus 11, as I mentioned, the first time God mentions this to Moses, before he mentions anything about the Passover or the blood or or how, uh, sorry, the the lamb or the blood or how it's to be spread on the door, before any of that is mentioned, he's already declared that he's not going to harm his people. He's already declared it. Not a dog shall growl against them. And yet, he says... I want you to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost and over the lintel or the header. Now see, here's the temptation. Here's the temptation, and it is deadly reasoning. The temptation would have been for some of the Israelites to hear what God had said to Moses. He said that a dog's not going to growl against us. No harm is going to come to us. I I don't need to waste my one-year-old lamb. Right? We need to let him grow up. That's a valuable animal. Why why would we kill him? He's already said he's not going to do it. We don't have anything to worry about. God's going to keep his word. He told Moses he's going to make a distinction between us and the Egyptians. Not a dog's going to growl against us. You see, it's, it's deadly reasoning. Because it's the kind of faith that can sound holy, but ultimately, it's not faith. You see, this is how that kind of daily reasoning can creep into our lives, right? We can, we can read the Bible 
And we can learn how God is sovereign over all things, right? He is the ruling king over all things. He is bringing the world to its intended end. He works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? He is sovereign. He is in control of your life and my life. Praise be to God, right? The lot is cast into the lap, right? The dice are thrown, but it's every decision is from the Lord is what Proverbs tells us. Right, so we can hear that and we can conclude then, I don't need to pray. Right, why would I pray? God's sovereign. Right, I believe in God more than you do, so I don't pray because I believe God is sovereign. And he's in control of it all anyway, right? Or, or we, we take uh, uh, evangelism and, and missions and we can convince ourselves, look, who needs to worry about missions and evangelism? Why pray for the people of Montreal? Why, why leave my home and go to Montreal, right? God is powerful. He's going to save who he's going to save. He doesn't need me. You see, but that's, that's, that's deadly reasoning, we pray because God has commanded it. He has invited us to it. And he has said he will listen to us. He will respond to us. We go because he has commanded us to go. He has said to us that, 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 that people are saved by hearing the gospel. But how are they going to hear if they don't have someone who is sent to proclaim it to them? And so we go because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, Romans chapter 1 says to us, right? We go not because we don't trust God's promises. We pray but not because we don't trust his promises, but because we do. It's our only hope, right? We pray because we believe God is sovereign, because we believe he is able, because we believe there's nothing that can stand in his way, right? That's why we pray, because we have every confidence, right, in the unshakable foundation of the sovereignty of God. We go because Revelations tell, uh, the book of Revelation tells us that there will be in the new heaven, tribe, in the new earth, on the last day, gathered around the throne of Jesus, someone from every tribe, people, and language, and nation. They're going to be there. And so we go to Quebec. We go to Montreal. We go to all these places because we know that there God is waiting to redeem a people for his own name. Right? We don't sit back. And say, well, God made promises, so I don't need to worry about it. No, no, the fruit of enduring faith demonstrates itself in obedience. So when God comes to Moses and says, tell the people to kill the lamb and spread the blood over the door, then the way we glorify the promises that God has made is by doing what he's called us to do. And so he can have declared it in Exodus 11 that he's going to uh, not allow a dog to growl against them. And yet at the same time, it is still true that if they didn't paint their doorpost, the firstborn in that home was going to die. God is a God of the means, the obedience that we are to act on, and the ends when he accomplishes his purposes. You see, it's our actions that demonstrate that we are trusting in the promises of God. When they spread the blood on their doorposts, they did so in faith. It was a sign and demonstration of the faith that they had in their hearts. 
Listen, this is why head knowledge of Scripture doesn't save anyone. Right? You can have head knowledge of the gospel. You can have your head filled with theological facts. You can know up here that, okay, yeah, Jesus came in the flesh. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect, righteous life. And that righteous life is given to us by God's grace, if you trust in him. And he laid down his life on the, cross and he, on the cross and he took the wrath in place of God's people. He victoriously rose from the grave uh, so that his people could one day join him in that glorious resurrection, right? You can have all those facts right up here. You can know them. But if it's not joined with, with faith and the fruit of that faith, then you're not a Christian. You see, the response to the gospel is that we must repent of our sin and trust in Christ as our Savior. And when we, when we trust in Christ, when we trust that, that he died in our place, that he has redeemed us, that he has made us his children because of his finished work on the cross and that, God, and that Jesus took the wrath of God the Father on himself, when we place our faith in that, our lives should bear the fruit of it. There should be obedience that comes from it. Our lives should be marked by obedience. You see, faith calls us to action. And so can you look at your life and see the evidence that you are trusting in the cross of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus and the promise of forgiveness and restoration in him? Jesus says that nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Right? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them it is the one, verse 21 says of Matthew 7, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the connection. Does that mean that your doing of the will of the Father is what saves you? No. Your doing of the will of the Father demonstrates the faith that you have. The saving faith is what saves you. In the same way, painting the blood on the doorpost is not what saved the Israelites. The faith that was demonstrated in their painting of the doorpost is what saves the Israelites. But the painting of the doorpost marked them out as the faithful people. And your obedience and your doing the will of the Father is what marks you as God's people. It's what sets you apart so that, verse 28, the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them so that the wrath of God might not touch us. 
So we have to ask ourselves the hard question, are our lives marked by the obedience that God has called us to? Because again, it would have been very easy for the Israelites to sit back and to say, like I said earlier, who needs to paint doorposts? He's already said he's going to do it. He's already said he's going to save us. But yet they still had to paint the doorpost. Right? God's promises are true. He will keep us to the end. He will complete what he has begun. But yet he has also prepared good works for us, as Ephesians 2.10 says to us, and we must walk in them. So enduring faith bears the fruit of obedience. Enduring faith bears the fruit of obedience. Number two, enduring faith acts on God's provision. Enduring faith acts on God's provision. Look there with me at verse 29. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So again, we reach back into the Old Testament uh, the, the death of the, the plague of the firstborn comes. Uh, Pharaoh finally uh, is convinced he needs to let God's people go. He's had enough of it. He lets them go. God knows that the people are not yet ready for war. He's concerned that they will immediately re, you know, uh, uh, regret being set free, which they do. Or they complain already, but he's trying to protect them from even more. So he leads them out of way so they can avoid immediate war against the, the uh, people who occupy the land where they're going. So he leads them by way of the Red Sea. And as they end up there next to the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he's, you know, he decides, I should not have let them go. And so he comes out after them. And he brings a, an army, a, a mass of chariots to come after God's people. And there they are trapped in the middle. They can see and know and probably hear the thundering of the horses and the chariots on the way. They're trapped on that side. The Red Sea's on the other side. And they are panicking, right? They had already complained earlier about not having water, right? The guy does these incredible, miraculous, 10 plagues, right? Overwhelming, miraculous things. And then they're working. It's what we do too, right? God, you've been faithful for the last 20 years of my life, but are you going to be faithful tomorrow, right? This is what we all struggle with. You, you would have been standing there with them complaining about not having water, okay? So they complained about that. There they are. Pharaoh's army's coming. And they, again, they're grumbling to Moses. Look, Moses, if we're going to die, we would have rather just died in Egypt, right? Why bother coming out here to die, right? At least we had some food there. We had some water there. And we wouldn't have to face the slaughter of this army that's coming to take us out. Why did you bring us out? And God in his infinite patience and mercy that none of us deserve says to Moses, and to his people through Moses in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. which I think is God's tender way of saying, stop griping. 
right? Be silent. Watch me work. And so the pillar of cloud that had been leading God's people moves to their rear and sets up essentially a barricade between Pharaoh's army and the people of God. And God says to Moses, hold your hands up through the night and I'm going to split this Red Sea wide open. And God brings a strong east wind, Exodus tells us. And through the night that wind blows and it separates the water of the Red Sea and creates dry land in the middle. I, I just want to pause here for a moment and, and take that in, right? I think we often take this for granted. Right? It's not just that he split the water wide open, which... Right, that's incredible. But the, the land is dry in the middle. It's dry. It's not mushy, right? Have y'all ever, you ever like walked in a lake and felt how disgusting that is on the bottom of your bare feet, right? It is mushy and gross and that land is soaked like feet down. And in one night he parts the water and creates dry land for them to walk over. And Exodus 14 says they, they begin to walk, which, you know, often I think we picture this like it's flat ground and it's split. But remember, this is a sea. So they're like having to climb down, get to the bottom, walk across. They have to climb out the other side. And it says in Exodus that there's a, a wall of water on either side of them. I don't know about you, but that's, that's a majestic sight, but that is a terrifying sight. Right? You have apparently this massively strong wind blowing through the middle of the Red Sea. You have a wall of water on either side. And you have Moses saying, God said, we got to go between that. Now look, maybe it's better than the army that's coming at your back. But the people of Israel did not have a great track record up to this point. Right? As far as their complaining and their attitude and their spirit. But yet... But yet it says, verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. In faith, they walked, they acted on the provision that God had provided for them. And you had to think, like every step they take, can you imagine, it's hard enough to take the first step, but by the time you're in the middle of it, right, you're in the middle of the Red Sea, and there's a wall of water on either side. It had to be a just absolutely terrifying experience. At any moment, these mountains of water could come crushing down on you. But they didn't let that keep them from acting on the provision that God had given to them. Now think about this. I, I, I don't think until I was meditating, preparing for this morning, they ever thought of this. There were a dozen other ways God could have pulled this off. Less terrifying ways, right? He could have just had lightning bolts, take out Pharaoh's army, right? Deal with them that way, and then safely over time, deliver them another way to get to where they were going, right? On, on uh, you know, through, through a land passage a different way. He could have sent down a host of angels to literally pick them up and carry them over the water, Right? There, were a, there were dozens, probably a thousand different ways God could have done He could have teleported them, right? He could have chariots of fire, right? There's all kinds of ways God could have done this. 
but instead it's this terrifying parting of water with walls of water on either side and God says, this is the day of your salvation. Walk through it. Look, there are times when the way God provides for us may not be the way we want to walk. It may not be what we want to go through, but it is what God has provided. And enduring faith is a faith that says, I see how you've provided, and I'm going to walk through it regardless of how terrifying it may be. Sometimes that looks like suffering in our lives. Like none of us want to suffer. The, the reality is sometimes we need suffering to awaken us to our, our need to put our faith and trust in our Savior. Some of you may be called to leave everything behind and, and go overseas to, to, be, to be the laborer we're praying for, to go out, right? That's a terrifying reality to walk through. But it may be what he's calling you to. An enduring faith acts on God's provision. Look, even the story of this church, right? Where we are today when uh, Liesl Baptist was here uh, in, in their struggling situation, uh, needing people. They were, you know, down to uh, 15 or so people and Refuge Church is over here and we're struggling. We need a building. And uh, out of nowhere, God miraculously and providentially connects us to each other. And then Liesl Baptist looks at us and says, I don't know about those guys. And we look at Liesl Baptist and like, I don't know about those guys. There's a lot that both sides have to be afraid of, right? What's this going to look like? What, what's going to happen if we go through this? But how terrible would it have been if we had not acted on the provision that God literally dropped in our laps? Right? And here we are. Here we are, Right? We have to act on the way God provides for us. And sometimes that's hard to discern. But it's why we lean on the promise that James give us, gives us that if we ask for wisdom, he will give it. It is an unshakable promise from God. So we must act on God's provision if we're going to have enduring faith. Just quickly stick with me. Number three, uh, enduring faith requires patience. You see this here. In verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So here we get to Joshua. Notice we skip over the wilderness wanderings, right? 40 years because there wasn't a lot of faith being exercised in that time. And so we kind of fast forward. We get to Joshua. They're to the end of the wilderness wandering. They're on the edge of the promised land. Joshua's going to lead them in. And God says, I'm going to take down Jericho for you. I just need you to walk around it for six days, right? One lap a day for six days. And on the seventh day, you're going to walk around it seven times. Then the priests are going to blow the trumpet. And then the walls are going to come tumbling down. Now again, there were numerous other ways God could have accomplished this for the people of Israel. But in Joshua chapter 6 verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Before they took their first lap around Jericho, what did God already declare to them? They're already yours. I've already given them to you. It's already a sure thing, right? So we're reaching back to what we saw earlier, right? It's, it's done. We still need to act in obedience. But I'm going to make you wait a little bit longer, right? It's been 40 years you've been waiting to get to this point. Generations have died off. Here you are. But you're going to have to march around it for 
six days, seven times on the seventh day. And then, and only then, am I going to bring down the walls. Look, the blast of the trumpet on the seventh day, the shouting of the people on the seventh day had nothing to do with the walls falling. All right, let's just get that clear. All right, there's no trumpet strong enough to make the walls fall down. All right, it was God's doing because God's people responded in faith to what God had called them to do. Now look, the people could have given up on day two, day three, day four, day five, or day six. Why do we have to walk around this thing one more time? He already told us he gave us the city. It already belongs to us. This is silly. Why do we have to do this? Walking around the building every day, or not the building, the city, every day. But look, sometimes, sometimes God just wants to demonstrate what it looks like to be faithful over time. And this manifests itself in our lives in so many ways. It's in the spiritual disciplines, right? Reading your Bible every day. Sometimes it feels like a chore. Sometimes it feels like nothing is happening when you're reading God's word. But he's at work. And he's promised us that if we are students of his word, if we meditate on his word, he will change us. Sometimes it looks like evangelizing your lost friends, right? There may be that lost person in your life that you've been praying for for decades. That you've been faithful to share the gospel with for decades. But it may be not the 10th year, it might be the 11th year when God finally decides to save them. See, enduring faith requires patience. God could have said to Joshua, I want you to walk up to the gate of the city and snap your fingers. And when you do, I'm going to make the walls of Jericho fall over. He could have done that. But he wanted his people to experience what it meant to patiently wait. He wanted us to see that. And as they obeyed him and patiently did what he called them to do, he showed himself faithful and the walls fell and they took the city. Then finally, fourth truth about enduring faith is enduring faith must be personal. It must be personal. See there verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So this woman, when the walls fell, she was living in the wall of the city. But when it fell, her life was preserved. She did not perish. But the reason for that reaches back to before they marched around the city. They had sent a few spies into the land to check it out before they came to march around it. The spies go And they find a friendly welcome in the home of Rahab. They needed to hide from the authorities that were coming after them. So Rahab hides them. That's what it means when it says that she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. And as they're there talking, uh, they know the authorities are coming. So they end up hiding uh, in uh, basically kind of her roof area. The authorities come looking for these men. And she sends them out by another way. She doesn't give them up. And then they talk with her about why did you not give us up? And she says, because I've heard, I've heard of your God. Destroyed your enemies and shown himself to be faithful every step of the way. And I don't want to suffer the same fate. She's trusting in the God of Israel. 
But here's why I say from verse 31 that faith must be personal. And I think it's why it's repeated here that Rahab was a prostitute. All right, it seems kind of rude to the author of Hebrews to have to bring that back up, right? But why is it here? It's here's a reminder that there was nothing in Rahab's life that would indicate that she should have turned to faith in God and that God should have been faithful to her. She was a resident of the enemies of God. She was of the people who were the enemies of God. She was a sinner who was in rebellion against God with her lifestyle and what she had been doing. Right? She had every reason in the world to be destroyed with everybody else in Jericho. Right? She, she's not a part of God's people. She didn't have parents who were, who were priests. Right? There was no lineage. It's just this woman on her own there in Jericho. And she expresses faith in the sovereign God of the universe. And because of that, God spares her life. And so when the walls fall, Rahab and her immediate family's lives are saved. And in the end, Rahab becomes the mother of Boaz, who marries Ruth. And so Rahab becomes the great, great, great grandmother of King David, who, of course, is the descendant of Jesus. And it's why Rahab is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus in the Gospels. God saved her. He called her out because she individually trusted in him, even though there was no reason for her to do so. So what I want you to see in these four events is that each individual event points us to the gospel. You see, he called them to cover their doorpost with blood, and if they would do so, their lives would be spared and the destroyer would not touch them. In the exact same way, the blood of Jesus Christ covers us the blood he shed on the cross where he took God's wrath in our place. But it wasn't just any ordinary blood. There is something special about this blood, right? It is the blood of the divine son of God. And it covers all who trust in him, all who look to him in faith. And so the wrath of God will pass us over because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that stands in our place. And even as the people walked in the middle of the walls of water, right? This water that represents the wrath of God that was ready to come crushing down on them, but because they trusted, because they had faith in the goodness and the sovereignty and the kindness and the tender mercies of their father, the wall stood firm. But when they got through and the Egyptians attempted to do the same, because they did not go through in faith, the water came crashing down on them and took every single one of them out, just like God said it would. But through faith, God holds back the wrath that we deserve because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that stands in our place. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down and those outside the walls were safe, but those inside the city suffered the wrath and condemnation that God brought on them. And yet even then, even then, the one woman and her family was saved because she trusted in the goodness and in the sovereignty and in the ruling reign of the God of the universe. Not because she was a Jew, not because she was of any special position, but no, simply because she had faith. And that's the good news for us this morning. 
It's not about who your parents are or who your grandparents are.